This week on Here For Now, Sarah Aranda. Sarah considers herself a student of life and a giver of language. We talk through some of Sarah's writing and her endeavors in the outdoors. Sarah also shares about how craft and culture are one and the same. All that and more coming up on Here For Now. talk to yourself when no one else is around no not really i'm in my head a lot what's your inner monologue sound like like in what sense i guess like the voice obviously sounds like me <laughs> but that, that's fair i mean it could have been like a stranger than fiction kind of thing where like Correct. somebody else's voice. a british <laughs> yeah you writer never know. <laughs> i don't know how other people's brains work I, I usually process out loud to myself I commonly am like, you're crazy for doing this out loud. My monologue is, is 50-50. It's, it's sometimes it's internal and other times it's external. Mm-hmm. But usually when it's external, it's when I'm feeling crazy. Like when I need to go move my body, I'll start talking to myself out loud, which is usually an indicator that I need to go outside. <laughs> I mean, I, I read out loud sometimes, especially when I'm editing my work, but that's just part of that process. I don't really find myself talking out loud, I guess. Both of our situations are normal. That's nice to hear. <laughs> I don't always feel that way, but it's it feels good to hear that from someone else. <laughs> what does a day in your life look like? It really depends on various factors, of course. But if I get a good night's sleep, then I'm fairly decent at waking up, like between 7 and 8 in the morning. I'll immediately put the kettle on the <laughs> stove, start some tea. I'm definitely a tea person. Um, and then I'll like cook some breakfast. I really am trying to eat a lot of my greens in the morning um, with eggs. So just like kale and green beans or broccoli or something. And I saute that with eggs and there's some top tea on that. <laughs> I either like it's hard for me to have like a an idea of what I will be doing in a given day because like my mood can just be different but I try to read like I've been trying to learn a lot lately the last few months I've have been really centered around learning and trying to be a better reader better listener and then of course I'll try and leave some room for the actual writing work or exercise or whatever it is I have to do that day what do you consider your your job to be I consider my job to be a student of life and a giver of language. And a big part of that medium is writing for you. Correct. What draws you to writing? I think writing has been a tool for me to communicate because I I feel very insecure for the most part in public settings and in when speaking. Like I'm not a very good speaker. I hate public speaking. I always feel like my head goes blank and I'm just this empty vessel with like nothing smart or important to like give for the most part. Um, But then when I'm able to sit with myself and write, I feel like that's when I truly come together. Even though, yeah, there's like some inherent like issues with like perfectionism 
and desiring to like even validate myself, like validate my own thoughts and, oh, but I need to edit it this way. Like, why do I feel like I have to edit myself? And, you know, there's just so many wormholes in that sense of, well, maybe I'm not a good speaker because I'm too much of this self-critic. Being a self-critic tends to lend itself to that sort of internal struggle. Mm -hmm. And I have also experienced that when speaking in front of people or to people, even sometimes with people I know or I'm close with, there's this voice being like, what are you saying? Like, what are you, what are you doing right now? Yeah. You need to do better at this or you need to change this. And that sometimes some days for me, that voice is a lot louder Mm -hmm. than I want it to be. Yep. And some days I'm like, thank you voice in my head. That was helpful. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I've always, I've always been the person that after a conversation, I'm just, oh my gosh, like, why didn't I say it this way? I could have said it this way. And, oh, but that would have been really amazing if this point came across. You know, I'm just like, I can't get away from that editor in me and wishing I had done something different. And I've had many situations, like even at Outdoor Retailer, trying to like network and involve myself in this outdoor community and where I've been so afraid (laughs) that I've literally, and I'm so embarrassed about this, like I sat down at this table at this event and um, there were a bunch of people from Latino Outdoors there. And I was just so nervous and so shy and just so scared. And I like couldn't get myself to talk to any of them. <laughs> and there was this awkward moment where Jose was in front of me and then he like looks at me and it's like, all right, this is the moment where we're supposed to have this introduction and conversation. And I just like froze and I was like, ha like oh, they're having an announcement over there. <laughs> and I just like get up and leave. And I just, you know, I'm just, yeah. Sometimes these fears or these parts of me that I truly just like feel like I can't control get the best of me. And then now I have to like figure out a way to move on from embarrassing moments like that. <laughs> is that more the editor inside your head or is it more of like an introversion kind of thing? Definitely introversion which I think surprises a lot of people that don't know me like on a very or in a very holistic way because I can show up like there have been many moments where I'm there and I'm showing up for myself and for the community that's around me and especially when it's all about women in the outdoors and we're feeding off each other and I'm here to climb with you and I'm here to do these adventures with you like I can be there and I think a lot of the friends I've made in those situations are very surprised when I tell them that I'm actually like a very insecure person for the most part. (laughs) You're talking a little bit about the editor within you that's kind of back there trying to edit the things that you're saying when you're in those maybe more stressful situations or times when you're feeling a little overwhelmed by whatever's happening around you or having to step up to talk to somebody you don't know. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you think that that sort of writer voice or editor voice that you have gets in the way? And that's kind of what I'm getting at with introspection because that's like Mm -hmm. a high level of introspection. Like, is it almost leading my internal dialogue for me Yeah, in a way? Possibly. But at the same time, when I am in this introspective self and space, like I'm very comfortable. So then I do feel very liberated to just think and do and almost like acknowledge the editor and and sit at peace with it and and I think that's why I love writing because then I can engage 
and recognize the editor and recognize the moments where, okay, I just need to like let go a little bit and the ebb and flow and all of that. But it gets very difficult to kind of just maintain that composure when I'm in a more dynamic environment, like a public space. Right. When you're sitting down or you're in the right space, headspace where you're like, I'm going to sit down. I'm having a day where I'm going to write. You have kind of infinite time and space to yeah. explore mentally. And yeah, if there's a little bit of that pushing on you when you're in an exciting environment or you're meeting somebody new or you have to stand up in front of someone and say something, I I struggle with that in a lot of different circumstances where because I tend to be very introspective and I think there's a level of introspection, you know, I've never been, never considered myself an extrovert. So I think for me personally, there's so much introspection that happens and it almost dials up. Sometimes that voice gets a little bit louder when I'm a little more uncomfortable in a social situation. And sometimes that is the thing that keeps me from communicating or being articulate. Yeah. I also, I think part of that plays into just feeling like everyone's judging you or <laughs> or just maybe you aren't convinced that they are but you just the possibility of it still freaks you out yeah or that you've done something wrong yeah i tend to even with close friends be like i shouldn't have said that thing that i said and i need to like they're probably upset with me right now when if i bring it up they're like what are you talking about i, know. <laughs> I don't remember what you said yeah uh, we're i think people like us can definitely be a little hyper aware and almost to the point of, you know, it's like a fiction we're creating, but yeah, a little bit of a fiction yeah. sometimes <laughs> you mentioned being able to come alive in certain aspects of your life or things that you're involved in. Like what are some of these community aspects that you're passionate about right now? It's kind of a complicated answer because I feel like with COVID especially, I feel very removed from communities I had once known or even communities I am not familiar with but almost wish I could be a part of. It's also hard to like define a community, I think, today in the modern world when it's like I can even define Instagram as a community. <laughs> That's like an online virtual community. Yeah. <laughs> um, and sometimes I really enjoy it and sometimes I don't and it's really detrimental to my mental health. But yeah, it's just like there's a longing for a sense of family and I feel very passionate, I think, about trying to reconnect or understand or just kind of let the idea of family redefine itself for me. I mean, my family's story is obviously very complicated, even identity like again this giant pandora's box it's like whoa <laughs> there's just so many aspects of what what does community even entail and where how do i fit in you know i could just go on and on about all these different aspects there's certainly no one way to define community and i think we all experience community a little bit differently mm -hmm. and i get what you mean it's easy to it's a bit of pandora's box especially when you start bringing in identity yeah. into that well, maybe I can focus this a little bit, spend a little bit of time reading through some stuff that you've recently written. And one of the things that, I don't know if this is recent or this is just something that caught my eye on your site. You wrote, somewhere in this body, there are roots. I would love for you to expand on that. Mm, that's a good one. I'm actually really glad you brought that up because that line, it's actually kind of a tagline on my website mm -hmm. and elsewhere. And I feel like it truly defines 
my existence. If you could describe Sarah in one sentence, I think that would be it, that somewhere in this body there are roots, and I'm trying to figure out what those roots are for me and what are what is the historical context, the social context, cultural context of all of that. And, and it definitely unravels into a huge story of identity and um, I think my issues with feeling very ghostly. I mean, there's definitely days where I feel more comfortable with who I am. And then there's other days where I get too mixed up in, in just, you know, reading a lot of what people talk about on the internet about what they think identity should mean for me. (laughs) And it's like, they're not directing it at me, but in a sense they are like, they're defining these boundaries and categories. And I'm just like, whoa, like where, like there is no box for me. And that's been something I've been having to deal with my whole life. (laughs) I have another quote that you alluded to. You write, ghosts have never appeared to me in the way people say, but sometimes I startle myself, forget what living is even like. You don't need to feel dead to feel forgotten. I was definitely feeling that a lot last year. And I I mean, that's when I wrote it too. But it's something that I feel like I've been trying to grasp for a long time. And then COVID just like made it feel worse because of the isolation that we've all been dealing with. Like I do, I do often feel forgotten by many people. They might not even realize that I feel this way. And, And I also feel like, well, it's not, I can't expect them to know that I'm feeling this way. So I should be communicating in X, Y, Z. And, you know, like I should do this and I should be this, you know, it just goes, it spirals into this like vortex abyss thing. And again, like the matter at hand, it's like, yes, like I do feel very lonely. And I think I deal with loneliness a lot. And it's strange because it's like, like I'm married and it's very happy marriage, very loving. And I have good friends But a lot of them are back in California and I'm here in Colorado. None of my family lives here with me in Colorado. And last year definitely opened my eyes like, whoa, like why am I living so far away from any of my other family members? Would that help if I were near them or near the friends that have been my friends like time and time again over a decade? It's hard to navigate like where does the loneliness come from and where does it end? <laughs> you mentioned being a ghost as a state of mind mm-hmm. and also ex- experiencing ghosts. So talk to me about that state of mind idea because I, I align with that. When I read that, I was like, oh, I, I get this. It has to do with this loneliness factor. It has to do with feeling forgotten even when there's a part of your brain where you're like, I'm not forgotten. Like I have these people, I have this community, I have these relationships that are valuable to me. Mm -hmm. They haven't gone away. For me, it personally comes from just like my family life growing up and a sense of abandonment from my father. And then when my mom passed away, it was just like, suddenly I feel like I have no parents. And so where do I fit in everyone? Like, (laughs) um, I'm just kind of perpetually seeking that like, Like, I just want to feel like someone's child again. And I've written about this too, or I think I even say this line where, but the the earth gives me that. And so for me, I'm trying to find 
my place as a child in the context of Earth and just like how I adventure and how I um, take up space in the outdoors. Like feeling like a ghost, it can be, it is a mental state. It's like, I think associated with, you know, anxiety and depression and a lot, just like this, like a heaviness and not really knowing how you appear <laughs> to people and and why should that matter how do you appear to yourself like i don't know if i'm making any sense right now feeling ghostly is definitely i mean for me associated with being depressed and feeling sad or mm -hmm. intentional isolation or forced isolation for these times as well for me i find it's hard sometimes to remove myself from that feeling and then I tend to also feel haunted by not necessarily specific beings or whatnot. It's just like events in my life mm -hmm. have consistently haunted me. And when I feel like a ghost, I experience these other ghosts. And sometimes I don't know. I don't know how to deal with that. Well, I think you touch on a like a very tangible phenomenon just like like everyone has their ghosts and they don't have to be these abstract metaphors like they're a very real thing mm -hmm. and sometimes we can manifest like with a, that energy just like in a dance with the energy around us we manifest these like like a poltergeist if you will and it just physically appears as this haunting in a very literal way and i think for the most part especially here in the United States, we have a lot of issues with addressing our ghosts and why these ghosts even exist. What were the systems that were in place that created these ghosts? <laughs> to summarize it, you can you know, explore the realm of intergenerational trauma and colonialism and all of the effects of that. So that's a very real real thing that people deal with very much so how do you go out into the world and try to be like a child of the earth you you're a runner you spend a lot of time doing that is that one of the main ways that you find that connection i think so because i feel like i have so much to learn still and i just want this teacher and the best teacher in my you know, young life was my mother and so obviously it it fits with the norm of mother nature <laughs> but to me it like actually becomes this like a very literal motherness and like I want to learn and I want to feel like I can be who I am outside and not have to worry about the things that I worry about too much when I spend too much time alone. And then I get to that sense of play. You know, I'm allowed to be curious. I'm allowed to be inventive and ask all the wrong questions and make mistakes. And again, kind of comes down to like learning, but the learning never stops. And I truly believe that people that are obsessed with perfection, which I'm guilty of because I grew up, you know, type A perfectionist, but that just like doesn't actually exist. In 2019, you ran with Emma Muir, the Wind River High Route, and set an FKT. It's been some time since you had that experience. How long were you out for? 
Three days, 17 hours. So you're out for three days, moving in the mountains, dealing mm-hmm. with whatever mother nature was throwing at you. Mm-hmm. You've had quite a bit of time now to reflect and experience what comes after those sorts of events. How has that experience affected you to this day? Well, I think it continued to show me this capability that I always doubted in my younger years. Like I, even in college, like I'd never run a marathon until I turned 30. And I was just convinced that I was never going to be able to run a marathon because I had knee issues, like knee pain, constant knee pain and weak knees. And oh, but my dad has weak knees. So maybe it's just inherited genetic thing. My knees are bad. And um, I just, I just always assumed that long distance running just was never going to be for me because my body isn't made for it. And things like this, the Wind River high route and other long distance running that I've done just like has completely blown that out of the water. And I think the main difference is that I actually know how to train now, you know, I know how to be patient with myself and how to focus on recovery, not just the exercise aspect of things. I know how to listen to my body and how to like take preventative care and do the strength training. And obviously a lot of this takes a lot of time, but it, for me, it's been a lot of trial and error. Like I've never had a coach. I've never had this like athletic mentor telling me what to do. So I just kind of go out and try and all right, this seems to be working for me, but how can I, how can I make it better? Um, That's definitely a trait that I've always had maybe driven by this old ghost of perfectionism, (laughs) you know, but yeah, I feel like with the Rin River experience specifically, it definitely put me in, in spaces that I hadn't actually experienced before as far as mental spaces and physical spaces. In my trip report, I talk about this, but the, I think it was the second night we were above 11,000 feet and the sun had already set and we were behind schedule. And I was just, I just bonked and I was, I started to go down this shame spiral and just feeling like, God, like Emma's so much faster than me. Like she can just skip on the talus, like nothing. And I'm like holding her back. And, you know, then I start spiraling. Like I'm the reason this expedition is going to fail. Yeah. It goes fast when it starts. <laughs> yeah. And I had to stop and like tell her, like, I don't know if I can continue more tonight. Like, I just, I feel like I need to sleep in my mind was kind of like getting away from me. And, but then she was having issues with her lungs. Like she was developing a cough and we were still above 11,000 feet. So like, that's a concern. Like she wanted to drop down at least another thousand before thinking about sleeping. And so we had this dialogue and it was tense. And I mean, we were both like kind of on edge, I think. And she had said some things that later she told me she regretted saying. And cause she had brought up this notion of the pain cave and, like who well who has better experience in the pain cave and it and it's just like a common like whoa like how can you kind of like pin someone against a wall and and then kind of tell them that well your pain cave isn't as good as my pain cave (laughs) yeah that seems like something that would come out when you're exhausted at eleven thousand feet 
we were able to discuss that at a later time and be more calm and like rational about what had happened. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then the third night actually was even scarier, but not in that sense of like tension between me and Emma or Emma and me. It was literally like I didn't know what was happening with my body. And I was worried from a medical standpoint. And even with my wilderness first responder background, I was just a little bit baffled and wasn't sure how to interpret what I was experiencing. And because um, suddenly I was just like, Patrick had hiked in to give us a mini resupply and he was, he would be talking to me. And then I just, I wasn't responding. And I, and I was like acutely aware that I wasn't responding, but then I also felt just like too exhausted to, to do it. Like it's just beyond me. <laughs> yeah. When you're in that deep, your body starts trying to get you to stop. Yeah. One minute your stomach hurts, the next minute your legs feel like cement, the next minute you have a headache, and then like sometimes all of it hits at once and sometimes you can't speak words. And Yeah. It's a scary place to be when you're worried about your physical safety and longevity after something like that. Mm -hmm. How did you deal with it? Well, I've tried not to panic and um, I kind of just was trying not to force myself to act a certain way. And I just wanted, okay. I was just trying to like, like curl in almost and see, okay, well, what's happening? Like maybe I just need to like listen a little bit and calm down. And, um, but then like these, these signs, the symptoms kept happening where I started packing my bivy sack and then Patrick's like, Sarah, Sarah, like, no, you need that. You don't have to put it away. You know, like my brain was just like, like just doing, and literally I remember thinking like, I just need to do something. Like, I feel like I might be going crazy. Like, I just need to physically do something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then I, the rest of the night I was just like shivering almost uncontrollably, which is like obviously a bad sign. Yes. Um, and, but eventually it stopped and I was able to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, that was third night you're like 80 miles in something like that uh let's see uh, maybe a little more somewhere around there yeah yeah you've been basically i mean you've had some rest but you've basically been awake for two days not stopping moving yeah not having enough food is you've been above tree line the whole time and yeah you found some rest and you feel okay when you started moving again surprisingly like i think we maybe got four hours of sleep left that night and oh, it was man. just like a matter of like you wake up and it's go time my body had completely gone into this survival mode and it wasn't difficult like any other camping trip casual car camping you're just like eh, i don't, don't want to get yeah, up it's cold that. outside yeah. like but literally that that did not happen at any point during this this endeavor it was like my body just like you got to get up and go. <laughs> yeah, you were in full survival mode. Yeah. Was the experience on the high route one of the more challenging things you've undertaken? Definitely. It was honestly, like it sounds funny in retrospect, but this was my first ever fastest known time attempt. So it's like the first time I'm ever attempting to obtain some FKT thing is the Wind River High Route. 
<laughs> yeah, some would say that's the deep end for FKTs. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then I, like previously, the longest distance I had ever covered in a single day was, I think, like 31 miles. Um, not to say that, I mean, the difference here was like we were willing to sleep. So I wasn't concerned with like, it was almost like, between 15 and 30 miles in a given day. So I wasn't really going over what I'd done before, but it was just the whole context of like... <laughs> yeah, you're out there, you're in it. You don't get to head home when yeah. you feel like you can't do it. Yeah, You have to keep going. And I tried my best to train and be mindful and and I knew the risks involved and it's like, whoa, like this is this deep end scenario, scenario and how... Like, how am I going to fare? <laughs> um, but it all played out well. And, and I really, I mean, I think the, the land itself for granting a safe passage. Yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful way to think about that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. If that was your first FKT attempt, you've cranked out a few since then. What draws you to that sort of event or self-imposed event, I suppose I should say? Mm -hmm. It actually brings up, I think, a curious question about community too, because there is this new rising, like, quote unquote, FKT community. And it actually, like, I'm not really a fan of it in a sense. And, you know, I, I should explain that more. Like, I've never been a fan of, like, oh, let's go conquer the mountain. I'm just going to be up top and, like, you know, beat my chest. And <laughs> I am mad. <laughs> yeah. And we've dug into that a little bit too earlier about being like a child of mother nature it's yeah. obviously you're not out there to conquer right and i feel like a lot of the fkt community that has thus shown up and presented itself and the people that are i think really drawn to it are unfortunately these types of people that they're only in it for like the fame or some sort of glory or conquering aspect and and maybe maybe i'm just making generalizations and assumptions but for me like I enjoy it because it is a challenge and it, again it comes back to like what am I capable of and this just like wanting to feel on a very intimate level how where and why my body can exist in a given space. And then I also like literally see my FKT endeavors as educational opportunities. I am going to a place, who were the original people of this place? How can I learn about them? How can I write about what I've learned? And not just in this perspective of people, but land. And how did the glaciers shape the Wind River Range? And so I do have an essay actually that I wrote about the Wind River High Route. And I'm still waiting to hear back about whether it's accepted or not. I had sent it to Creative Nonfiction Magazine last May, and I have yet to hear anything back from them. Um, crossing fingers, hopefully taking their time like that is a good thing. I can only assume. <laughs> That's the right attitude to have. Yeah, but I actually have already moved on to writing another essay that actually is influenced by a lot of the FKTs I did in 2020, which were very desert oriented. And that surprised me because I hadn't really addressed, I think, my relationship with the desert 
I've always been obsessed with like, you know, motherness and, and, and mourning the passing of my own mother and mountains and, you know, like that's like almost becomes this, I mean, it is essentially this cliche, but I'm finally at a place where I feel like I can start addressing my dad and his influence on my life because he is truly the source of how I was exposed to nature as a child and his curiosity with the outdoors. You know, he grew up hunting and he was very athletic and he was all about planting and like we had strawberries in our backyard, like just random things (laughs) that he just loved doing. And he'd save the tadpoles from the little creek down the hill because every summer it would, we were in a drought in California, so they would just die prematurely. So he put it upon himself to collect them and he'd just have like buckets of water in our front walkway just filled with tadpoles and just this curiosity and wonder with nature. It totally, totally influenced me and, and it's taken me a long time to acknowledge that. And desert spaces have come to represent now these male spaces. And so, yeah, this current essay I'm working on is kind of, I'm addressing the patriarchy in a sense and trying to find the softness in it. So I had a question written to ask you about what you feel like your platform is for affecting change in the world. And I think you just told me (laughs) what that is through your writing, what kind of positive change on top of what you have just said, what are you, what are you striving for? I have always had this vision, I guess, about wanting to be innovative. And in college, it's like, I remember going through all the classes and wanting to understand, well, what is being talked about here and now and how can I make it different? And I was really drawn to poetry, but as I've grown on from college, I feel like my true, my true specialty with writing lives in this hybrid genre of it's a very liter a very lyrical creative nonfiction but then it's this it it becomes this hybrid thing because of my poetry background and lit and literally in this new essay I have just like lines of poetry that then break into prose and so I'm actually trying to occupy this hybrid space with less shame because it's always been this like thing with literary magazines it's like when you submit a piece is it creative nonfiction or is it poetry or is it fiction the three main categories and you can only exist in these boxes (laughs) yeah you have to fit in one of the three (laughs) exactly and I feel like my voice and my style of writing has always been this combination of the poetry and creative nonfiction and that's becoming more normalized now and I'm really excited and I'm hoping that I can be included in that space (laughs) pushing your own innovation, striving to exist a little bit, not because you want to, but because that's where you feel you belong, live outside of whatever boxes are created, mm-hmm. I think is a really good way to, one, find yourself, learn more at least, mm-hmm. two, just be able to show other people that, hey, like I can, I don't know if you fit in these boxes, but maybe you don't. I can try i'm trying to not fit in these boxes yeah i associate with that what sort of advice or information could you share from your experience of trying to live outside of some of those boxes a little bit to someone who's maybe feeling a little bit crushed by their inner voice or feeling like they don't 
fit in the box that they're supposed to. It's just proof. It's more proof that these boxes should have never mattered and that things like craft and culture are literally one in the same. Like you can't have craft without the culture that it, it exists in. And unfortunately, in this time, like craft has been made in this culture of, you know, the patriarchy and the white man and, you know, all of that. So I think just realizing that what has been set or written as the rule of everything is only just this like suggestion of the white man. <laughs> and you don't have to follow that. I get excited thinking about how my writing can contribute to this idea of decolonization, not just in literature, but how I live my life, how I see myself as an athlete. And I just want to continue to expand that. I just want to like grow and be like, I just want to be me. And I want to be me without anyone ever having to like ask me, like, who are you? What are you? You don't look Mexican or mestiza or you don't look quite white either. <laughs> like, you know, it's like I'm tired of being this like this like ghost, you know, that we've talked about. And I just want to be able to walk into a room and people to just see Sarah and or Sada, like whatever, you know, and it's just that's how it is. You have some direction to get there. Mm -hmm. You want to be yourself. You want to contribute what you feel to the world. That's an incredible way to affect change. And it's difficult in a lot of people's lives to figure that out. We're not given the space. Yes. Or direction or guidance, you know, especially for people that don't ever see themselves replicated in a medium, you know, whether that's film, photography, writing. Um, and that's why I'm like really reading this new book, Craft in the Real World by Matthew Salis's. Um, it's just incredible because he's the first author to address craft in this. It's like we've taken the blindfold off. Like all the other craft books ever written about writing are in this context of like how white men used to sit in a room and talk about literature. <laughs> Um, and that has never changed. Like no one has ever updated that. And so finally he has. In reading this book, he talks about how, from his perspective, his experience, obviously he uses personal experiences. So as an Asian American, he'd go to a workshop and like someone's piece may be discussed and say that the piece is about a Korean American in Korea experiencing Korean culture and so they start writing about like the setting and all these details and you're supposed to be like edgy and like use words or details that like stand out right that's like what we're obsessed with like <laughs> and so the writer will write about you know these details that are actually quite meaningful and I can't you know think of the specifics now but basically it's like but this writer from their perspective in their culture like these are details that are very important and that stand out and are va like valuable for the story. But then in the context of this workshop, it's like everyone's obsessed with like, oh, but you should have said it this way or like 
because you're basically because you're Korean, that's already exotic, you know, like so these other details are almost too much or, you know, they're just like people start talking about what they think is exotic and what's not. And it's like, whoa, like <laughs> there's a difference here between the white culture and the Asian American culture, obviously. So a lot of I think people of color writers are discouraged from writing what they know or they only want to write for an audience that is their culture. But writing for an audience that is their culture in the context of the white workshop like doesn't function. And then the white workshop is like, no, to be a good writer, you have to write like this. And so then that person of color writer, you know, you see where I'm, where I'm getting. Yeah, it's I'm a going. cyclical yeah. circle. Yeah. So what's, how do you break out of that? I think just acknowledging the truth of the matter that there are systems in place everywhere, literally even in the workshop space at a university. I think just encouraging this quote unquote thinking out of the box, which capitalism likes, but then also doesn't like at the same time. <laughs> yeah, we've definitely taken the idea of thinking outside of the box and put it in a very small box. Yeah. Cliches aside, we should get rid of the box. <laughs> I don't want to deal with the box. Yeah, I think maybe some advice is just being comfortable. Like if people are experiencing a life that they feel similar to what I'm sharing, I feel like the word liminal kind of helps describe this. And that also tunes in with the sense of a ghost. Just knowing that that is an acceptable place to be. From experiencing ghosts of your past and feeling like a ghost sometimes to staying true to yourself and wanting to push who you are away from whatever boxes are placed in front of you. What keeps you moving forward? I think it really boils down to this belief in myself and, and life. Like I, even though I deal with a lot of, you know, like I have traits of like mental health issues and, you know, what have you. But at the heart of it, it's I, I, I love living, you know, and I want to make the best of what I can. And and it's funny because I was listening to the podcast before that you had published. And um, one of the questions you asked was, what would you tell your five-year-old self? about your life now and and literally I, I was like I wouldn't want to because if I did that five-year-old self wouldn't continue I think you know like it's it's like really harsh to say but it's like I would never wish what I've been through on any child you know so it's like, well, thank God I don't have future me. It's like, yes, of course I made it. But now it really comes down to this notion of gifts. And reading Robin Wall Kimmerer, Braiding Sweetgrass, I think really helped me feel value in like, I have a gift. My writing is a gift. And I'm just gonna, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna give it. Think about that. We do all have gifts to give. What's yours? You can find more of Sarah's writing on her website, bivytales.com. Big thanks to the folks listening along with Here For Now. I appreciate you. Make sure to check back for new episodes every Monday.